Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, professor of history at Brookdale Community College. Today we'll be discussing a new book by Brooke Kroger titled Undaunted, How Women Changed American Journalism, published by Alfred A. Knopf. Brooke Kroger is a professor emerita at New York University where she was the founding director of the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute and taught from 1998 to 2021. She was the UN correspondent for Newsday, deputy metropolitan editor at New York Newsday, and for more than a decade, a correspondent, editor, and bureau and division chief for United Press International at home and abroad. She serves on the editorial board of American Journalism, a journal of media history. Brooke, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and thank you, Jane, for inviting me. Uh, So this is your sixth book. Congratulations. What drew you to the history of women in journalism? (laughs) My whole life, perhaps. Uh, There's that. And in this case, uh, actually, I was asked to write this book. So it was not my idea. It came from the editor, a gentleman older than I am, if you can imagine. And he was looking for such a book and could not find one. Actually, there are a couple that do something a little bit similar, maybe not to this extent. And there's a great big one, but from 1936, called Ladies of the Press by Ishbel Ross, who was one of the original front page girls in the 1920s. I'll tell you more about that if you ask. And um, so, so there is a book, but it's 80 years or so out of date. So this is basically the successor to that book. There have been some academic books that are very good, but um, they take more of a profiles approach, you know, sort of seminal figures, names you know. This book pays no attention to names you know, though there are many names you know might know in it. It's really uh, designed to tell the history of women in the field. And the women who show up, and many show up, and their stories show up, but they're showing up because they're examples of what is happening decade by decade by decade. And I think by doing that continuum, that was revelatory to me because 
I've worked with this material in many ways for a very long time. Um, not only my own career, which would be like from the early 1970s, the very early 1970s through to today. So that part I kind of had a pretty good sense of. Uh, but I wrote a biography of Nellie Bly that came out in 1994. Then Fanny Hurst, who was a short story writer and novelist, but did quite a bit of casual journalism for the women's magazines and the big magazines. And so I had a lot of magazine history from her long career. And, you know, so that, and then I've taught for 22 years. So I've been very, very engaged with new media and things that have happened uh, in the period from 1998 to 2021. So that's my background. And then putting the, all that together in this continuum starting in 1840, which is where we would count the, most people count the beginning of mass media. It's when the New York Tribune happens, the Sun, I mean, all those big New York papers. So that's a period I hadn't done from 1840 to 1880. So it was fun to do something that was altogether fresh. And I can remember thinking after Margaret Fuller and Lydia Maria Child, who are kind of really pioneers, that, oh, those women of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I can kind of ignore. And then I, in doing the work, I realized, no, 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 they're really important. Um, they had a very interesting approach in breaking through at a time when it was exceedingly difficult for women to do so. And of course, over the decades, that becomes a little bit easier and then a little bit more easy and then a little bit more easy till we get to the modern era. Yeah. So this book really covers the entire arc of American journalistic history from the 1840s all the way up until today. Correct. So you seem like the perfect candidate because you have the academic background as well as the journalism background to do this. So I really felt that's how I think I got asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They they picked the right person. And you know, the um, you know, the in the women's history, from the women's history point of view, we talk a lot about restoring women to the story. And I think that, you know, restoring women to being known in history. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was in eighth grade and our English, I had a really fantastic English teacher in eighth grade named Mrs. Gilmartin. And she must have gotten um, some kind of a, a grant to get New York Times for the entire class for this whole year. So every day she would hand out the day's edition of the New York Times. Everybody got their own copy. And that comes from the Times. The Times offers that to academics. Oh, great. Well, you know, this was 1980. I was an eighth grader. And she made me so aware for the first time, she had us look at the front page as a class and said, how many women journalists are on the front page? And, you know, that was like, uh, that was an aha moment for me as a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old that on the cover of this respected newspaper, that there were no women journalists listed. And so that story, when I read your book, I remembered Mrs. Gilmartin. <laughs> and I remembered this idea of the importance of having women in the field of journalism and what does it bring. So, you know, that's what I hope we're going to really chew through today, talking about your book and and what it means. So I, what, how did you just, go ahead. I was just going to say that I have a little bit of a contrarian idea about recovery. Um, I, you know, I, I 
I get a lot of credit for recovering Nellie Bly. She was in the zeitgeist. You know, she was in a popular song. Uh, she was in a Stephen Foster song. Mac the Knife, I think, makes a reference to Nellie Bly. There are things like that. So there were, you know, wisps of her that that sustained, even though there was no biography and no archive. And there were two children's books from the 1950s, which a lot of young journalists, women who became journalists who are of my era read in the 50s. I'm one of them, which is how I got excited about the idea of being a journalist, as did many others. But so, you know, recovery there, you know, has seemed valuable because she's been restored in a real way. She's very much most many people have heard of her now and in ways they hadn't. So I feel, you know, quite proud of that. But there are plenty of other women, you know, that don't need to be recovered. I feel like the same way a lot of men don't need to be recovered. In doing this work, you notice in the early journalism histories, women are pretty much left out. And even some very important women are left out. And yet, and I'm talking about the, the ones that academics have used, you know, these big volumes that uh, Journalism 101 often has as its book. Uh, they've obviously had new editions and they aren't so exclusionary now. But in those early days, they're like that because I would go back and look at the first editions, you know, to see, okay, what were people saying? How was it? And there'll be the names of like 20 men who were sub-editors of some kind or another that nobody cares about and don't need to be remembered. And so I think that's something we should keep in mind in recovery, that like recovery for recovery's sake is not really a value, but it, it should be thought about very carefully in terms of, is it telling us something? Is it helping our history along? Are we learning something that we need to know? Right. Yeah, I know. For my, I could say that for my students, when we talk about what uh, things that women did throughout American history that they weren't aware of, it really for them helps them to realize to understand that uh, women were significant, yeah. and in whatever way that they just didn't know, and so it it's psychologically definitely I I think makes a, a positive impact when we talk about women who have been forgotten about who were important. Or if you talk about what's happening in a given era to women who are really not supposed to be there, I think that's helpful. You know, yeah. Or in terms of the story in general, rather the story in specific, though the story in general is best told through the story in specific. So I think, I, I, I feel like this book is an inversion of a compendium or an encyclopedia. It's just not meant to be that at all. Right. Illuminate every decade. So yeah, so let's let's segue into like the structure and how did you decide who to include, who got left out? You know, the structure is, I think, really um, drives the momentum. So could you talk for a minute about that? Happily, I love to talk about structure. <laughs> And I think this is the right audience to talk about structure. So how do you approach a book like this, 180 years of history? Uh, my editor was very specific. He felt like it had to be chronological. He was 100% right. And the chronology is so illuminating because seeing this history as a continuum, especially as someone who's done pieces of it, you know, and when you're doing a piece like you're doing the Vietnam War or you're doing World War One, or you're doing... Uh, the stunt girls or whatever. And there's some great books on all these topics, but you're kind of going, if 
five or 10 years before and five or 10 years after, and you don't really have the longer picture. So you start to attribute maybe more to that era than we ought to be attributing. You know what I mean? Because uh, I, I like to use the example of Barbara Walters, such a major figure in television, certainly. But, you know, Pauline Fredericks was doing this 15 years earlier. She's the more interesting figure from a standpoint of breaking ground. And yet she's quite forgotten. And, you know, so that kind of recovery makes sense because that's history. So that that's the sort of thing I was talking about. So what did I do? How am I going to approach this? So I have access to a zillion databases. You know, one of the great gifts of being a professor of Merida, and I used to using them. So I apply the words woman, women, woman, women, and journalism by decade, you know, 18 times. And I, not scientific, as I say in the introduction, but it was a way to provide consistency. So I'm looking at women's magazines, general magazines, newspapers, academic papers. I'm looking at everything by era, by decade, to see what burps up, like what comes out, what is, what is standing out. I had one of my former students helping with the people I wasn't so interested in, but thought I ought to know something about because of the way their names came up. So she was doing little, you know, praises about those folks. And some of them ended up in the book, you know, because, oh my gosh, this is an interesting story that illustrates X, that sort of thing. Certain things would come up like, I like to use this example of Dorothy Thompson, you know, so forgotten, and yet she was such a major figure. I mean, major. She's, you know, the Beyonce of journalism of the 1930s, really, truly, and that well-known and that well-respected and the blue-eyed tornado, you know, Richard Harding Davis in an evening gown. I mean, she's really something. In the same year, both the Saturday Evening Post, which is just about as middle-brow as you can get, does a profile, but not a one-issue profile, a two-issue profile. Who gets a two-issue profile, you know, in succession? Who gets something like that? Then the New Yorker is doing exactly the same thing in the same year, a few months later. Two issues on Dorothy Thompson, and that's, you know, at the more highbrow end of publications of the time. And remember, the 1930s is a period where magazines are the major form of entertainment. We don't have television. We do have radio, but magazines are home entertainment. They are it. So it's even a little different than having something like that happen now. It really matters in terms of uh, popular value in the in the period. So I look at that and I say, wow, I have to pay attention to this woman. So then I would start digging deep. People like um, Ann Stringer, someone you've never heard of, she has a fantastic World War II story. I mean, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. And she's great at World War II. She's one of the Rhine Maidens. You know, I find a story in time about the Rhine Maidens, three women who are breaking the military's code and they are barreling their way up the Rhine, digging foxholes and reporting because they work for the news weeklies and they work for wire service and nobody's asked them to come do girl work, which is what most women are being asked to do. And the military is barring them from doing what these women are doing. And kind of giving them a blind eye pass because they're like guys. You know, they know how to function in this environment, asking no favors and giving none, as time said. And you can read what you want into that. Anyway, so her story is fantastic. And then on top of that, doing this extraordinary work during the war, 
which a number of women were doing, like Marguerite Higgins, Gellhorn, I mean, many were. So that in itself doesn't make her interesting. But she goes to Nuremberg and is breaking story after story, working with Walter Cronkite. So I know that's going to engage readers because that's really interesting. And then, of course, her personal story just knocks your heart out. She and her husband are supposed to go to war. I shouldn't give all this up, but I will because it's such a great story. They're supposed to go to war together, one for both for Reuters. He goes ahead first. And before her papers come through, because it's really hard for women to get credentials to cover World War II, they're making it, the U.S. military is making it very, very difficult. He gets killed. And this redoubles her determination to go. And so she doesn't get hired by Reuters as planned. UPI takes her back. And she goes and does this extraordinary war coverage as a grieving widow. I mean, it's, and it's just kind of remarkable. So it's, all, it's cinematic. It's cinematic. How would I leave out a story like that? And, you know, the way she covers uh, the uniting of the U.S. and Russian troops, that I will leave out. But that's fantastic. I mean, the reporting, the, report, the, the repertorial acumen, the brilliance of how she approached it and pulled it off to beat everybody on that story is just, you know, journalistic gold. So mm. that would be a way a story would get in the book. And she's someone no one will have heard of. But does that matter? No. Like that. Yeah. And it advances your your big theme. Exactly. Every story is meant to advance the big theme. And that is more important than the individual to whom it is happening. Those women I was talking about from the 1860s and 70s who I was going to leave out, I realized, you know, like, I mean, I asked 12 big questions that I kept asking over and over again to decide who belonged here. And one of them was, how did they get in the door when it was so hard to get in the door? And that remains true till uh, Vietnam, really. And then it became easier. And it was easy in World War One and World War Two, but most of those women did not last. They would retreat from the um, from the field. Some stayed, but many did not. They were filling gaps. But these early women who are really trying to break through and the use of the abolition press as a, the first platform to me was completely fascinating. This was true of Lydia Maria Child and it's true of Grace Greenwood and Gail Hamilton. And I, I just found that fascinating. Why? Because the abolition press would give them platform because they were cheap. I mean, Gail Hamilton works without a salary for six months or longer, and then he finally pays her something at the National Era. Um, that's fascinating because everybody is reading the abolition press. The big editors are reading it. They see talent. Then they give them a leg up. One ends up at the New York Times, and the other ends up at the Atlantic for very long careers. So that's fascinating to me. And I liked looking at that a lot. And can you also comment on the black press? Oh, sure. So that's a place where I made one detour, because this book is mainly about the mainstream press, the women who worked in it, not on the women's pages. I talk a little bit about the women's pages, but they are left out of this book very intentionally, not because I don't value them, but because this book, to be completely crass, is about women who were doing men's jobs jobs men would envy at a time when women were not supposed to be holding those positions to a large extent. And even now, you know, we could go into that a little bit in this later years, but for the early period, that just seems really important to me. So I said, I'm going to write about the women who do men's jobs. Okay. I, I did 
leave room for Charlotte Curtis at the New York Times in the 60s and 70s because she turned the women's pages into a power nexus at that newspaper, which was extraordinary. And over 25 years at the paper, 20 of those 25 years, she really was at the top of the editorial heap in many ways. So she was important to acknowledge, I felt. And also she changed women's pages. I mean, many of the models that exist today, she was actually pioneering and so gets a lot of credit for that. So I gave her place. And then one of her predecessors, Eleanor Darton, in the uh, 40s, I included, because she was trying to break the mold and couldn't succeed, so she quit at, at the New York Times. She wanted women's coverage to go throughout the paper. She wanted them to stop writing fluff. And so what she does is quit, and then she forms a women's news service that lasts limps along for about seven or eight years. But she really was committed to serious work, even though that, that wire service had a lot of fluff too. But uh, nonetheless, the impetus was really strong and um, and with vision. So, you know, I, I did do a little segue for those two because I thought they were representing something particular. And you could see how the Times was evolving. And then, of course, after Charlotte Curtis comes the big lawsuits and the civil rights legislation, which takes six years for women to realize that it applies to them. I mean, imagine how ingrained the, sub the subordination was that it takes six years to figure out that it's a vehicle you can use to change your employment situation with, mm. with your higher ups. So that to me just says everything that it took long to say, oh, this, this includes us. Like, oh, we're oppressed. Goodness me. So to me, that was fascinating. Right. Yeah. So did you have an audience in mind that you wanted to reach with your story? Did you have, you know, anything in particular? I, I mean, in my mind's eye is uh, women like me who've been through this because I knew they would be a core audience and young women coming up because I think this book is full of subliminal career advice, not even so subliminal. I mean, there are so many do's and so many don'ts. One of the huge ones is the importance of networking, which you see from Margaret Fuller straight through. At, no matter how ingenious they were, no matter how talented, they had to know how to work a newsroom or how to cultivate the editors who were in a position to help them. And these women were masterful at this. And that was something I hadn't expected to find, but came through over and over again. You see, you know, Margaret Fuller cultivating Ralph Waldo Emerson, who she has this mad intellectual crush on. And, um, and then how his wife, helps her, and Horace Greeley's wife helps her. That's how she gets her job at the Tribune. Not only does Mary Greeley suggest that she come work as the literary editor for the Tribune, you know, the largest paper in the country uh, at the time, 1840, uh, but but um, offers them her hostelry in their home, in their home. The same thing happens to Grace Greenwood and Gail Hamilton. They go live with, the, with Gam Gam Gamaliel, I can't even say it, uh, the editor of the of the National Era in Washington. Well, those homes are nexuses of cultural New York and cultural Washington. So they meet everybody. I mean, master networkers. That's great. And I think, you know, the, the research is impeccable in this book. And so 
I really admire how you walk the line that's so hard to walk in a book that is great, enjoyable reading, as well as having fine academic research behind it. And so I really, I, I found that to be so admirable. And I really appreciated the fact that I really enjoyed reading it and then really enjoyed looking at the footnotes uh, because I thought they were they were really fantastic. So those footnotes include about 30,000, much of the 30,000 words I cut because of length, you know, trying to keep it a marketable commercial length because this is Knopf, not an academic press. So I I just couldn't get rid of that material. And I felt it also enhanced the thing. And I, I love that you said that about the book. I don't think everybody feels that way. But being a non-journalist, because this book will carry a journalist pretty well or someone who aspires to be one. But hearing that from you where that is not your Metier is uh, incredibly gratifying because, you know, I think, you know, maybe it's a little dense. I, It doesn't seem so to me, but of course, I'm not a judge. No, it's a great read and it really moves along. I mean, I think that, you know, it's not uh, it's not tedious. It's it's not slow. It's it it really is fantastic storytelling. And I think that people will really enjoy reading it. I, I really do. I think it's a, a really interesting read. It's almost like you're reading a lot of biographies in their historical context of their era, uh, which I really appreciated. Um, you can say that 15 times. Since. <laughs> so, you know, the name of your book is Undaunted. How, you know, so how did women change American journalism? So in various ways, I mean, first of all, they introduce diversity. I mean, we could, I don't, no one would have called it that, but in introducing diversity, things change because another set of eyes is on things. So we see this in various ways. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead just to say like one of the examples, Anna Quinlan's example was when she was at the Times and Geraldine Ferraro is running for vice president, um, she gets the, she and other women get the Times to stop describing their clothes. Like, why was that happening? Well, if no woman had been there and it's been set piece for decades to describe what the candidates are wearing, you know, how do you change your mind about that. I like the example of Charlene Hunter-Galt, who, you know, in an episode gets the Times to stop using Negro and to use Black instead and got the Times to change. And someone said, well, that could have been a man who did it. True. But a man didn't. She did. You know, and she wasn't the only Black reporter on the paper. So that there we see that. We know that women, if they didn't invent, they uh, made great the form of the interview, because women were very good at interviews. Women were very good at feature writing. That's why many of the women who even ascend to be editors have come through the feature track. It's not unusual. I mean, the better track to become an editor is to be metro editor or city editor, where you're doing hard news all the time. But a lot of women did not get opportunity there. We saw it in, in the way the women we're advancing out of the women pages starting in the 1880s. So we start with the stunt girls, Nellie Bly and her cohort. And that's, a, you know, that's kind of a funky form, but it gave women platform for the first time off, off those women's pages. They're young, they're beautiful, tiny cinched waists, million dollar smiles, and they're doing, you know, daring do. Um, in Nellie's case, it always was, was with a social service agenda. That's what really set her apart, that she's always, after uh, stepping into the biggest issues of the day and trying to 
illuminate what the circumstances are for people. Then you have more important than Nelly, though, you know, I'm the Nelly person, but more important than Nelly, the two Idas, Ida Tarbell and Ida B. Wells, who take this kind of precursor of investigation, which the detective stunt girls are doing, and really bring it along into verification documents. So you've got Ida B. Wells on lynching, you know, game-changing reporting, and Ida Tarbell on the oil monopoly. Uh, and in both cases, these women are coming out of a milieu where they know about these subjects in very visceral ways. They're not reporters coming cold. So I'm sure that helps. Ida Tarbell grew up in oil country. Of course, uh, Ida B. Wells is in Memphis. I mean, you know, they're, they're subjects that come to them quite naturally, but then they do the hard work. So that that's, you know, women, they're women. They're all three women. It's interesting to me that all three of them live around the same time. They're within five or six years of each other in age. This is the beauty of chronology, you know, that where you suddenly put together these things that you hadn't seen before or thought of. And I really went to some lengths to try to see if they knew each other or they commented on each other or if there was any kind of, you know, camaraderie or cross-section, even if they weren't friends or together because they all live in different places. But there wasn't. And even I talked to several uh, Tarbell biographers. Nobody had, nobody knew of any connection. The only thing I found was kind of a snotty remark from Ida Tarbell about uh, women wanting to come into the field. She writes an article about, you know, what it takes to be a woman journalist. This is before her work on Standard Oil. And she has one comment where she says, Every woman should spend, who wants to be a journalist, should spend her patrimony on a political economic education at the highest possible level, you know, which is really a slam to Nellie, who basically had a ninth grade education. I, I, I mean, it seems to me it was, given the timing. I, I can't say that for a fact, but you kind of get that smell. And um, that any any other sort of preparation for the field is going to end in nothingness. Because, and in truth, the stunt era played out very quickly. Then, on the heels of the stunt era, we get the Sob Sisters. Another not beautiful moment in women's journalism history, but another place where women got platform in the news pages because they were writing these schmaltzy sidebars to the court stories, the big court stories of the day, the trials of the century. And it, it, you know, the model is Mary Sunshine in Chicago. I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of the model. And they don't last very long. They last just a few years and embarrassingly. Uh, but you notice that the, the term stays in the language for every, you know, in, it's used in sports, it's used in everything now. So that, that's basically the negative impact. And then from them come the front page girls. So suddenly they find it, uh, editors find it auspicious to have at least one woman who's on the new staff. And these are very particular women who really can cope, who really uh, are the man's, a man's idea of what a newspaper woman should be. Because also in the 20s, we have women coming into the field, sexy, attractive women, crossing their legs, sitting on desks, uh, bothering the staff, uh, conjoling editors by complimenting their ties. I mean, all kinds of things that do not do women credit. And maybe one or two of them, maybe many of them make mistakes, uh, ask men for too much help with their assignments, 
And maybe that's only happening once or twice, and then it that brush tars everybody. And so women then have to fight against this imagery of them. The same way in the 1840s, they were fighting against people thinking they were incapable of critical thinking, incapable, not just untrained, which is the fact, but that they were congenitally incapable. And that those saws just remain. They don't go away for decades. So women, in addition to everything else, are fighting against that. In the Victorian era, of course, era, of course, they're fighting against their clothing. They're fighting against the need for chaperones, which, you know, society is requiring of them, even though plenty are doing it without. You know, it's just lots of impediments are put in their way, and yet the best of them persevere. I'd say one more thing. The women were really exceptional, really exceptional, like Margaret Fuller. I mean, genii, you know, exceptional women never had a problem in this field, have never been held back, have always been able to do very well. It's just that the women who are like maybe one cut below or two cuts below, but maybe better than the men, do not get that opportunity. Right. And it seems like every uh, every era had its uh, turning points and things. So I really wanted to talk a little bit about the 60s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a you know particular interest in well, I like all these eras, but I really thought that the 60s was an interesting turning point in this book. So can you talk a little bit about the impact of the women's movement, civil rights movement, and how they're influenced by women journalists? How the movements were influenced? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I never put Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, although I knew they were both journalists, I never looked at them as from that perspective. Interesting. And how they both ended up being, you know, national figures in the women's rights movement. I just, I kind of was interested in in that question. So interesting you say that. So in their cases, they both start as journalists. Betty Friedan, I looked up her clips. So she wrote a little bit, often for women's magazines. She had one or two better pieces that were actually about the environment, kind of interestingly. And she's a, a mom at home who writes. And that, you know, that's a lot of what the feminine mystique comes out of is that suburban, torturous experience. And Gloria Steinem spent a long time abroad doing something else, comes back to New York and starts to write. So she's a journalist. Um, you know, we know everybody knows about the bunny story. Um, that That's an interesting, we can come back to that if you want, because I've got an interesting thought of that. It's not in the book that I discovered after the book when Barbara Walters died, after I would, and it already been turned in. But they both morph into full-blown activism. So I'm, from the standpoint of this book, I'm no longer interested in them when that happens because they're activists. Journalists, you know, traditional journalists by definition are not involved with advocacy unless they're working for the advocacy press, which of course Ms. becomes. So good for them, but that's not what my book's about. You know, it's, it's like the women's page book. Good for them, but it's not what the book's about. So I think... You know, I, I get these, but what about, but what about? I'm thinking, well, what about? You know, that's, that's not my writing about. So anyway, that happens. So um, so they're, they're helpful in the format. I found some early Gloria Steinem pieces in the New York Times where she was looking at the women entering television and, you know, makes some interesting comments about how few women there are who are not carrying coffee or doing something, you know, uh, rather superfluous. 
stories like that. So she already was thinking about these things. And um, when she does the bunny story, uh, which she says in her memoir um, that she was very unhappy about the result because people kept offering more and more prurient stories to do. It just wasn't doing for her career what she had hoped. And it was, you know, distressing in many ways. And then, of course, over time, she realizes that people are still talking about it, what, 50 years later, and that she did get the Playboy clubs to stop, you know, uh, touching women to assess their size to be bunnies, things like that. So it actually had, and it, it outlasted the Playboy clubs. So, you know, she, she found that it actually had value. What I found when Barbara Walters died is that Barbara Walters had done a bunny story six weeks earlier six weeks earlier on the Today Show where she was working, I think, as a writer, but she was not on the on-air staff. And I think this is part of her gambit. I mean, I don't know this, but I think it is to get on air because she doesn't get on air for another couple of years as a permanent person. But she must have volunteered to do this when the Playboy Club opened in New York because it opened two weeks before. Again, chronology is everything. And the piece is a fluff piece. It's about how it is to be a bunny, how do you get to be a bunny, what is the moral code of the bunnies, uh, how is it to be in the costume, how do you do the bunny dip, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the on-air piece is with um, Hugh Downs, who was the Today Show host. She's just little reporter. She looked great in the costume, by the way. And so they're talking about it. He tells her twice how she looks in the costume. She does give him the side eye. She did. Um, but when she's leaving early from the Playboy Club, the doorman says, oh, you're leaving early. And she says, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not a bunny. I am a correspondent for the National Broadcasting Network, you know, like that. And, uh, but she but she says to Hugh Downs, I was kind of proud that he thought I was a bunny. You know, it's it's the 1960s. And so it was so interesting to me that this total fluff piece is so few weeks before Gloria Steinem's expose. And not only that, while Gloria Steinem is reporting this, Betty Friedan's feminist mystique is on the newsstand. So, you know, there's obviously been prior publicity. And not weeks later in May, the first civil rights legislation passes. So... What a piece of history that is. I wish I'd had that for the book, but she she unfortunately died too late for that to come out because NBC posted her her bunny video. So that's how I figured it out. But again, doing the chronology. Oh, wow. That's, that's a great story. And so let's talk a little bit about today because this book comes all the way up to today and there are a lot of women running news organizations now. Totally. And so, you know, what are your thoughts? Okay, so a few thoughts. So you'll notice that a theme of this continuum is progress, setback, push, pull. I was just in an event the other night. I, I mentioned this in Bryant Park the other day, but with Mark Whitaker, whose book is about 1966 and the rise of the Black Panthers. And he was talking about how civil rights history is one of progress backlash. I use the word setback, but he uses backlash. And as he was saying this, I'm thinking, wow, that's women's history too. It's progress backlash. 
So we're now at a point where almost every news organization, either on the editorial or the business side, is run by a woman. Shocking. And if you read the book, you'll see why that's alarming, because when women come to the fore, things fall apart. Women are brought in when things are in crisis. Uh, war comes, men go off to war, there's place for women. Uh, a company is failing economically, suddenly a woman's in charge. I mean, this has been happening for a long time. Every time, like the first woman city editor in New York, the company fails a year later. The first black woman to be on a metropolitan newspaper in New York is a full-time staffer, not covering black matters, but just covering life and, you know, news. The paper fails the next year. I mean, it just seems to happen over and over again. So you see those articles where they show a grid of all these fabulous women who are running things, and I'm going, oh, this is scary because I care about journalism. So that's a concern. The other thing that's happened um, after Me Too, which I do quite a lot with, and you know there have been some substantial lasting gains from that two, three-year episode, but then what happens on the internet to women now? And I've written about this. If if you're writing about sensitive or controversial themes and you are a man, when the trolls come after you, they call you an idiot. They call you a hack, you know, things like that. If you're a woman, as someone at PEN America uh, described it, you have your face photoshopped onto a pornographic uh, beast and threats to rape your children. I mean, that's the difference. So someone asked me, you know, in these times of so much liminality and identity, uh, gender identity, if the whole question of talking about women doesn't make any sense anymore. And I said, if you hear the reaction to what I just described to you from women or from some incidents we've had where some well-meaning man has said something about women in journalism that puts people's hair on fire, it's still putting people's hair on fire, which tells me the question of women is alive, and especially this internet trolling that often ends up being physical as well, you know, becoming actual uh, houses marked, et cetera. So uh, I think that's all very live. Mm -hmm. I agree. And it is nice to see more women at the desk on TV journalism and, inter and uh, you know, the cable news journalism. It's nice to see more women there. And now when I look at my New York Times, there's a lot of women's names. Uh, but Jane, that also has to do with fields in crisis because the, you know, the traditional sociological theory on this is that the alpha males aren't coming to the field. They're going to do something else. So that is what's creating the opening where women are likely to be the better candidate. When I was at United Press, while the company was completely falling apart, not in the early days, but uh, at the end of my time there, I had a great vice president and I was in charge in Europe, Middle East and Africa, based in London. And looking around, I mean, most of our bureau chiefs were women, even then, why? Because Eugene Blaby would tell you they got better talent for what UPI could pay by hiring women. So that was in the 1970s. So I rest my case. Okay. Well, it's a terrific book. And I thank you so much for being on the show today and for discussing Undaunted, How Women Changed American Journalism, published by Alfred A. Knopf. Thank you so much, Brooke. It was a fascinating interview. And I hope everybody picks up this book and reads it. You're really going to enjoy it. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading. Thank you, Jane.